Chapter Seven of A Son at the Front. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for LibriVox by Mary Lou Capes Platt. A Son at the Front by Edith Wharton. Chapter Seven. A Son in the War. The words followed Campton down the stairs. What did it mean, and what must it feel like, for parents in this safe, denationalized modern world, to be suddenly saying to each other with white lips, "A son in the war." He stood on the curbstone, staring ahead of him and forgetting whither he was bound. The world seemed to lie under a spell, and its weight was on his limbs and brain. Usually. Any deep inward trouble made him more than ever alive to the outward aspect of things, but this new world in which people talked glibly of sons in the war had suddenly become invisible to him, and he did not know where he was or what he was staring at. He noted the fact and remembered a story of Saint Bernard. He thought it was walking beside a beautiful lake in supersensual ecstasy. And saying afterward, "Was there a lake? I didn't see it." On the way back to the hotel, he passed the American Embassy and had a vague idea of trying to see the ambassador and finding out if the United States were not going to devise some way of evading the tyrannous regulation that bound young Americans to France. And they call this a free country," he heard himself exclaiming. The remark sounded exactly like one of Julia's, and this reminded him that the ambassador frequently dined at the Brants. They had certainly not left his door untried, and since to the Brant circles Campton was still a shaggy Bohemian, his appeal was not likely to fortify theirs. His mind turned to Jorgenstein and the vast web of the speculator's financial relations. But after all, France was on the verge of war, if not in it, and following up the threads of the Jorgenstein web was likely to land one in Frankfurt or Vienna. At the hotel, he found his sitting room empty, but presently the door opened and George came in, laden with books, fresh yellow and grey ones in Flammarion wrappers. "Hello, Dad," he said, and added, "So the silly show is on." Mobilization is not war," said Campton. "No. What on earth are all those books? Provender. It appears we may rot at the depot for weeks. I've just seen a chap who's in my regiment." Campton felt a sudden relief. The purchase of the books proved that George was fairly sure he would not be sent to the front. His father went up to him and tapped him on the chest. "How about this?" he wanted to add. "I've just seen Fortin." Who says he'll get you off? But George's eye was cool and unenthusiastic. It did not encourage such confidences. Oh, the lungs! I imagine I'm sound again. He paused and stooped to turn over the books. Carelessly, he added. But then the stethoscope may think differently. Nothing to do but wait and see. Of course, Campton agreed. It was clear that the boy hated what was ahead of him, and what more could his father ask? Of course, he was not going to confess to a desire to shirk his duty, but it was easy to see 
that his whole lucid intelligence repudiated any sympathy with the ruinous adventure. "'Have you seen Adele?' Campton inquired, and George replied that he had dropped in for five minutes and that Miss Anthony wanted to see his father. "'Is she nervous?' "'Old Adele?' I should say not. She's fighting mad, la revanche, and all the rest of it. She doesn't realize. Sancta simplicitas. Oh, I can see Adele throwing on the faggots. Father and son were silent, both busy lighting cigarettes. When George's was lit, he remarked, Well, if we're not called at once, it'll be a good chance to read the Golden Bough right through. Campton stared, not knowing the book even by name. What a queer changeling the boy was. But George's composure, his deep and genuine indifference to the whole political turmoil, once more fortified his father. Have they any news, he ventured. They, in their private language, meant the Brants. Oh, yes, lots. Uncle Andy was stiff with it, but not really amounting to anything. Of course, there's no doubt there'll be war. How about England? Nobody knows, but the bankers seem to think England's all right. George paused and finally added, Look here, dear old boy. Before she leaves, I think Mother wants to see you. Campton hardened instantly. She has seen me, yesterday. I know, she told me. The son began to cut the pages of one of his books with a visiting card he had picked up, and the father stood looking out on the Place de la Concorde through the leafy curtain of the terrace. Campton knew that he could not refuse his son's request. In his heart of hearts, he was glad it had been made, since it might mean that they had found a way, perhaps through the ambassador. But he could never prevent a stiffening of his whole self at any summons or suggestion from the Brants. He thought of the seeming unity of the Fortin-Lucluse couple and of the background of peaceful family life revealed by the scene about the checkered tablecloth. Perhaps that was one of the advantages of a social organization which still, as a whole, ignored divorce and thought any private condemnation better than the open breaking up of a family. All right, I'll go, he agreed. Where are we dining? Oh, I forgot. An awful orgy. Dastry wants us at the Union. Louis Dastry is dining with him, and he let me ask Boylston. Boylston? You don't know him. A chap who was at Harvard with me. He's out here studying painting at the Beaux-Arts. He's an awfully good sort, and he wanted to see me before I go. The father's heart sank. Only one whole day more with his boy, and this last evening but one was to be spent with poor, embittered Dastre and two youths, one unknown to Campton, who would drown them in stupid war-chatter. But it was what George wanted, and there must not be a shade for George on these last hours. All right, you promised me something awful for tonight, Campton grinned sardonically. Do you mind? I'm sorry. It's only Dastry's damned chauvinism that I mind. Why don't you ask Adele to join the chorus? Well, you'll like Boylston, said George. Dastry, after all, turned out less tragic and aggressive than Campton had feared. His irritability had vanished, and though he was very grave, he seemed preoccupied only with the fate of Europe and not with his personal stake in the affair. But the older men said little. The youngsters had the floor, and Campton, as he listened to George and young Louis Dastry, 
was overcome by a sense of such dizzy unreality that he had to grasp the arms of his ponderous leather armchair to assure himself that he was really in the flesh and in the world. What? Two days ago they were still in the old easy Europe, a Europe in which one could make plans, engage passages on trains and steamers, argue about pictures, books, theaters, ideas, draw as much money as one chose out of the bank, and say, the day after tomorrow I'll be in Berlin or Vienna or Belgrade. And here they sat, in their same evening clothes, about the same shining mahogany writing-table, apparently the same group of free and independent youths and elderly men, and in reality prisoners, every one of them, handcuffed to this hideous masked bully of war. The young men were sure that the conflict was inevitable. The evening papers left no doubt of it, and there was much animated discussion between young Dastry and George. Already their views diverged. The French youth, theoretically at one with his friend as to the senselessness of war in general, had at once resolutely disengaged from the mist of doctrine the fatal necessity of this particular war. It's the old festering wound of Alsace-Lorraine. Bismarck foresaw it and feared it, or perhaps planned it and welcomed it. Who knows? But as long as the wound was there, Germany believed that France would try to avenge it. And as long as Germany believed that, she had to keep up her own war strength, and she's kept it up, up to the toppling-over point, ruining herself and us. That's the whole thing, as I see it. War's rot. But to get rid of war forever, we've got to fight this one first. It was wonderful to Campton that this slender, learned youth should already have grasped the necessity of the conflict and its deep causes, while his own head was still spinning with wrath and bewilderment at the bottomless perversity of mankind. Louis d'Astre had analyzed and accepted the situation and his own part in it, and he was not simply resigned, he was trembling with eagerness to get the thing over. If only England is with us, we're safe. It's a matter of weeks, he declared. Wait a bit, wait a bit. I want to know more about a whole lot of things before I fix a date for the fall of Berlin, his uncle interposed. But Louis flung him a radiant look. We've been there before, my uncle. But there's Russia, too, said Boylston explosively. He had not spoken before. Nous l'avons eu, votre rein allemande quoted George, as he poured a golden hock into his glass. He was keenly interested, that was evident, but interested as a looker-on, a dilettante. He had neither Valmy nor Sedan in his blood, and it was as a sympathizing spectator that he ought by rights to have been sharing his friend's enthusiasm, not as a combatant compelled to obey the same summons. Campton, glancing from one to another of their brilliant faces, felt his determination harden to save George from the consequences of his parents' stupid blunder. After dinner, young Destre proposed a music hall. The audience would be a curious sight. There would be wild enthusiasm and singing of the Marseillaise. The other young men agreed, but their elders, after a tacitly exchanged glance, decided to remain at the club, 
on the plea that someone at the Ministry of War had promised to telephone if there were fresh news. Campton and Dastrey, left alone, stood on the balcony watching the boulevards. The streets, so deserted during the day, had become suddenly and densely populated. Hardly any vehicles were in sight. The motor omnibuses were already carrying troops to the stations. There was a report abroad that private motors were to be requisitioned and only a few taxis and horse cabs, packed to the driver's box with young men in spick-and-span uniforms, broke through the mass of pedestrians which filled the whole width of the boulevards. This mass moved slowly and vaguely, swaying this way and that, as though it awaited a portent from the heavens. In the glare of electric lamps and glittering theater fronts, the innumerable faces stood out vividly, grave, intent, slightly bewildered. Except when soldiers passed, no cries or songs came from the crowd, but only the deep, inarticulate rumor which any vast body of people gives forth. Queer how silent they are. How do you think they're taking it? Campton questioned. But Dastre had grown belligerent again. He saw the throngs before him bounding toward the frontier like the unchained furies of Rude's Marseillaise, whereas to Campton they seemed full of the dumb wrath of an orderly and laborious people upon whom an unrighteous quarrel had been forced. He knew that the thought of Alsace-Lorraine still stirred in French hearts, but all Dastrey's eloquence could not convince him that these people wanted war, or would have sought it had it not been thrust on them. The whole monstrous injustice seemed to take shape before him and to brood like a huge sky-filling dragon of the northern darknesses over his light-loving, pleasure-loving, labor-loving France. George came home late. It was two in the morning of his last day with his boy, when Campton heard the door open and saw a flash of turned-on light. All night he had lain staring into the darkness and thinking, thinking, thinking of George's future, George's friends, George and women, of that unknown side of his boy's life, which, in this great upheaval of things, had suddenly lifted its face to the surface. If war came, if George were not discharged, if George were sent to the front, if George were killed, how strange to think that things the father did not know of might turn out to have been the central things of his son's life. The young man came in, and Campton looked at him as though he were a stranger. "'Hello, Dad. Any news from the ministry?' George, tossing aside his hat and stick, sat down on the bed. He had a crumpled rose in his buttonhole, and looked gay and fresh, with the indestructible freshness of youth. "'What do I really know of him?' the father asked himself. "'Yes, Dastry had had news. Germany had already committed acts of overt hostility on the frontier. Telegraph and telephone communications had been cut. French locomotives seized.' Troops massed along the border on the specious pretext of the Krieges Gefazestand. It was war. Oh, well, George shrugged. He lit a cigarette and asked, What did you think of Boylston? Boylston? The fat brown chap at dinner. Yes, yes, of course. Campton became aware that he had not thought of Boylston at all, had hardly been aware of his presence. 
but the painter's registering faculty was always latently at work, and in an instant he called up a round face, shyly jovial, with short-sighted brown eyes as sharp as needles, and dark hair curling tightly over a wide, watchful forehead. Why, I liked him. I'm glad, because it was a tremendous event for him, seeing you. He paints, and he's been keen on your things for years. I wish I'd known. Why didn't he say so? He didn't say anything, did he? No, he doesn't much when he's pleased. He's the very best chap I know, George concluded. End of chapter 7